from the McCourtney Institute for Democracy on the campus of Penn State University. I'm Michael Berkman. And I'm Chris Beam. I'm Jenna Spinelli, and welcome to Democracy Works. This week, we are talking with Dave Karp, who is Associate Professor of Media and Public Affairs at George Washington University, and also the author of a substack called The Future Now and Then. And Dave's substack was what caught my eye for this episode. He's written a little bit about where the parties go post midterms, and as we look out to the 2024 election cycle. He also writes a lot about social media, um, no shortage of things to talk about there either. But, you know, this is really in some ways a continuation of the post midterms conversation that that we've been having on the show and I think we'll continue to have in our season ender next week. But, you know, Michael, I think that there are some important things that political science can tell us about uh, how we think about predicting the midterms versus what actually happens and uh, you know what that means is, is we all continue to, to process where things are with our, our democracy at the end of this year. So I think there was a sense from uh, political science research in any case uh, that this was not going to be a good midterm for Democrats because midterm, the first midterm election for a presidential, for a president's party are usually not very good. Uh, Joe Biden's approval ratings were not very high, and the economy was not doing particularly well. I think what we got, however, is sort of two elections. In some states, I'm thinking of Florida, I'm thinking of New York, I'm thinking of some others, where abortion and democracy were not clearly on the ballot, uh, that we did see somewhat of a traditional Republican primary, uh, where Republican candidates did quite well, picking up a lot of House seats and winning some major party elections as well. In other states where abortion and democracy were clearly on the ballot, where people can really feel that those things were threatened by the election of, say, a Mastriano or a Carrie Lake in uh, Arizona, then I think that Democratic turnout was higher, youth turnout was higher, and Democrats did quite well. My concern was for for democracy because there were so many uh, election deniers on the ballot, right? I mean, not just you know, people who were uh, suspicious, but who had actually called the, you know, the 2020 election a fraud and said that Trump, you know, does, you know, really rightfully won. And I actually pitched uh, an op-ed on that. And then lo and behold, it really didn't happen. And I had to revise that op-ed three or four times because the, uh, the, the results just kind of were not that bad. It's not to say that no election deniers were elected. That's not well, most true. Most were, actually. Well, many were, yeah. Most and were. Uh, But there were, there were a lot of election deniers who uh, did not win. And, even, and, and what's more, uh, those people who lost, except for the, the glaring exception of Kerry Lake, they all conceded, right? Uh, yeah, I'm a little less optimistic about the results in that vein. But I, I think I want to think about it in a, in a couple of other ways as well. I mean, t- to be an election denier, what exactly does that tell us about somebody? To me, it suggests a strain of authoritarianism that should really concern us uh, because of the willingness to delegitimize a core tenant of democracy. And so if what we're really concerned about is 
in general, the rise of authoritarianism within the Republican Party, then I think the fact that over that 60% of election deniers actually won and are now filtered throughout government should should be concerning to us. I also think that you know this raises a point that uh, that Dave brings, uh, which I think is worth talking about as well, and that's the idea that it's you know there's this old saw that the only way. Trumpism was going to die was if there were three elections that he lost, two, three, whatever, lost big. And what uh, Dave says is that it's about losing relative to expectations. So, I mean, I think that's what Dave is arguing. His point is, is one that I had not really heard of before, but I think it's interesting. Michael, what do you think of that? Do you, you know, this idea that it's about Performance versus expectations versus some kind of, you know, it has to be some kind of blowout in order to be effective. No, I think that the parties are so calcified and so at parity right now uh, that it's going to take really a split in the Republican Party that essentially decimates it before we really see, you know, really can speak optimistically about the end of this authoritarian strain within the party, or I guess what we're calling Trumpism. I mean, Trump may lose, but Trumpism is running very strong. And that's part of my point about the number of election deniers that won. Mm -hmm. And I mean, we could be excited about Carrie Lake, but Carrie Lake lost by a hair. (laughs) And I mean, only Mastriano got blown out. The rest Mm -hmm. of them actually did quite well. There are plenty plenty of voters out there that are willing and eager to vote for people that deny basic tenets of democracy. And so I think it's more likely that what happens within the Republican Party at some point, you know, unless unless they're just able to keep the the system at parity the way it is right now, is that a major split occurs within that party uh, where Trump, I don't know, goes off by himself, where Trump decides he's going to bring down the Republican Party. Uh, something along those lines. But I think just beating Trump a few times, the, the strains of Trumpism are, are deeply entwined within that party right now. The only point where I feel like I'm more optimistic than, than you are is that, you know, I see, you know, there, there are signs of people taking baby steps away from Trump. Republicans taking baby steps away from Trump. Not away from Trumpism. Well, and these are things that uh, Dave is certainly thinking about and that we talk about in the interview, as as you guys alluded to. He has his own thoughts about uh, both the Republican Party and the Democratic Party and, and how they could or should move forward. So maybe we'll pick up on some more of that after the interview. But for now, let's go to the conversation with Dave Karp. Dave Karp, welcome to Democracy Works. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So uh, excited to talk with you about some of your uh, recent writing on Substack about the midterms and where we go from here. And by the time this episode comes out, um, we will be just about a month out from Election Day. And, you know, I think there was this sense of urgency going into the midterms about some of the very real consequences that could happen if election deniers won and and those sorts of things. And 
And that has somewhat eased up now, I suppose. Democracy lives to fight another day. But I know this is something that you've kind of been thinking through, like how we grapple with that sense of urgency as we look ahead to the 2024 election and, and beyond. So how are you thinking about that energy, that urgency that we had going into the midterms and, and how much of that should be sustained as we move forward? Sure. And yeah, this is December. We're about to be into December. We have this brief uh, respite before we start being in the 2024 election cycle, right? Like it'll probably be the 2024 election cycle starting in January 2023. We've got this little moment here where we can worry about things like the debt ceiling and, and stuff like that. I think it was right for us to be deeply worried that the 2022 election could spell the end of American democracy in a real way. There were election deniers on the ballot, and if we take them both seriously and literally, what they were saying was, if elected, I will make sure that elections don't matter in the future. All of them lost, and that is worth celebrating. The other thing that was really at stake, I think, in that election was it was the first election after Roe had been struck down. And that was, I, I would say, a really a pretty radical act from the Supreme Court majority. And I think part of why they had for decades wanted to strike down Roe, but not done it yet, was out of a sense that if they were just radically rewriting things as they go to, to fit their policy preferences, that there would be some sort of a blowback. There would be some sort of cost. And one worry that I had coming into it was if the 2022 election ended up going the way elections normally go, where the, the party out of power gains a bunch of seats, particularly if the if presidential approval is low and the economy is not great. That if it was just a normal election, then the lesson they would draw from that is they can really legislate from the bench with impunity and no one would care. So I think it matters a lot that the 2022 election, well, it looks like Republicans picked up the House, Republicans did pick up the House. What was expected to be a red wave turned out to be a red trickle. And I think that within the Republican Party network is going to signal that there was some cost to their actions. And that's important because if we need to have two parties that are committed to electoral democracy, uh, that are committed to our norms and our institutions, right now we don't have them. I, I said on Substack a few times that the only way to fix the Republican, the only people who can fix the Republican Party are the Republican Party. Mm-hmm. Democrats can't do it. And that only works out. That only happens. That that intra-party struggle, that, on, that, that only changes when the side that is currently losing and saying there's a cost to our extremism when they're proven right. So I think the outcome of 2022 is going to lead the the non-Trumpist wing of the Republican Party to have a little more force and a, and a little more energy and support behind their arguments that you know we should be in favor of all the policies we've been in favor of, but maybe we turn to uh, maybe we tune down the white nationalism, the election denying, uh, the outright authoritarianism, because that that is leading us to not win as many seats. And even if they like extremism, they also like winning. So. Mm-hmm. The Republican Party is not going to change until they, as a party network, come to believe that what they're doing is leading them to lose. Yeah. And and for listeners who might not be familiar with that term, party network, can you just say more about what that is and and where where it comes from? Sure. So this comes from a political scientist named V.O. Key from 50, 60 years ago, that parties in the United States are three different things. There's party inelectorate, which is PI. Uh, there's party organization, PO. And there's uh, party in government, PIG, PO, PI, PIG. So parties as networks is an understanding that uh, particularly uh, at the party organizational level, 
parties make up a bu- are made up of a bunch of different uh, interests, even interest groups uh, that represent different ideas, different policy priorities, and they all come together and and mesh into one party network. That happens different in different democracies because we have other democracies that have you know like eight, ten functional parties. So there are some de- democratic systems where the Republican Party would actually be three different parties, and the Democratic Party would be at least two parties. And Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has mentioned this offhand a few years ago, that like she and Chuck Schumer in a different country wouldn't be in the same party. They'd be in the same party. Like they, Their parties might govern together, but you know, they have different ideologies. In the United States, because we're a two-party system, you get these parties as, as networks, as, as coalitions of a bunch of different uh, organizations and, and priorities and they kind of fight it out for dominance. So part of what's happened since 2015, 2016 is the Trumpist wing of the Republican Party, which kind of um, emerged out of, I would say, the, the Tea Party wing, uh, that seized party, uh, that, that seized power. And the party leadership came to believe that Trumpism was the way to win elections, certainly the way to win primaries and the way to win the general. That then affects the way they behave, the way they talk, who they promote, uh, what policies they pursue. If they start losing, particularly if they lose multiple elections in a row, then most likely what happens is other elements of the Republican Party network say, hey, we've got to fire these consultants, kick out these leaders and do different things because we keep nominating people in the primaries who lose in the general and we would like to win, please. That takes multiple election cycles and it's hard to sort of guide that through. But them doing worse than expected in 2022 matters a lot for the broader project of salvaging American democracy by returning to a place where both parties at their core are committed to basic institutional rules and behavior. Yeah. And and on that point about kind of toning things down or or reforming the messaging, I know you are a scholar of, of political communication. And there was a, a piece, I believe, was in the, the New York Times not long after the election about you know, what do you know, election denial is not a great get out the vote strategy, right? So that might have worked worked against Republicans in, in some ways. But on things like that, or even on some of the other issues you mentioned where the, the, the party positions have become so extreme, I mean, what does it look like to tone that down, walk it back, whatever you want to say? And are there other examples that come to your mind of, of parties that have done that previously and, and done it su- successfully? Well, so in terms of party network change, I, I two two changes in the Democratic Party network come to mind. So we have the rise and fall of the uh, Democratic Leadership Council, and they rise in the late 1980s, particularly after Walter Mondale loses, because at that point, you know they they've gotten trounced in 1980 with Carter. Well, actually, he lost a close one, but it feels like a trouncing. And they lose. They they get really crushed in 1984. The Mondale only wins his home state of Minnesota and I think D.C. And at that point, within the Democratic Party coalition, within the network, the argument comes up that the the New Deal coalition, the the you know the the wisdom of FDR through LBJ simply isn't working anymore because the message from Reagan of, you know, big government is the problem. These are tax and spend liberals. Like the the belief amongst Democrats is, yeah, that's really harming us. If we keep being that party coalition, we'll never win. And so you have the the rise of the DLC, um, which includes uh, Joe Lieberman, but also includes Bill Clinton. So Bill Clinton is a DLC Democrat. And throughout the 1990s, that DLC uh, perspective which and I, I come out of the more progressive wing of the, the party. So I was, a, I was a high school student in those years. And 
know, people that I ran with, like the crowd I ran with were looking at them saying that's Democrats being Republicans light. Like that was the criticism. Yeah, yeah, sure. Crime bill, welfare reform, all those kind of things. Yeah. That set of policies comes out of the DLC wing. The DLC wing is dominant. The way it comes to dominate is because the previously dominant wing kept on losing elections. And so the argument of we've got to do different things, both say different things, but also prioritize different things, takes hold. Um, And then you see in 2000, you know, George W. Bush, uh, well, he he doesn't actually win. He becomes president. 2002, he picks up a bunch of seats because we're after 9-11. He still has that sort of halo. But then 2004 with Kerry losing, at that point – um, with the rising uh, political netroots. So this is like the, the Daily Coast crowd and, and MoveOn.org, groups that I wrote about for my first book, actually, the MoveOn effect. Um, but that that wing starts fighting an intra-party battle with the DLC, essentially arguing you keep on m- making these Republican light messages. You, you keep on just trying to appeal to a centrist electorate that doesn't exist anymore, while Karl Rove is out there appealing to his base, turning them out and winning elections if we keep doing the same things, we're going to keep on losing. We've got to do different stuff. And I, I would say, well, the net roots don't go on to control the entire Democratic Party. It's very clear that 2006 into 2008, the DLC wing of the Democratic Party loses power, loses centrality. So that's, I mean, this is like a, a rough calculus. I haven't done like a thorough peer review mm-hmm. study here. But I, I it seems to me that the, the formula is if you lose three elections in a row – relative to expectations, that then creates the conditions where within a party network, the side that has been losing the arguments has the opportunity to start really winning them. Mm-hmm. Would you count 2022 as the third election then in for, for, for Republicans if the 2018 midterms, 2020 general, and now 22 midterms? So maybe, and this is what makes it really complicated, right? Because they lost badly in the House in 2018. Like they lost terribly, but they kept they they did better than expected in the Senate, and they kind of stood behind that narrative. And then in 2020, at first they were kind of insisting, well, we're not losing because of Trumpism, we're losing because of COVID. And then they kind of committed to actually no, we won and the election was stolen. And that's kind of where they've been. So I'm not sure whether 2022 really counts. My guess is that they need to lose again in 2024 because right now within the party network, it's like they weren't behaving in 2022 as though, you know, we just got crushed twice in a row, but we're going to try it one more time. They were behaving as though like Trumpism works. We know it works and we're going to, you know, we just got to keep on doing it. It'll work. Um, We're now seeing that start to fracture, right? So we're now seeing a bunch of senior people within the party network criticize Trump and say, it's time to move on. We'll see whether or not that lasts, and they have said that before. So I don't know if that will last. But I think you probably got to get through 2024 with them losing versus expectations. And if that happens, then I think there's a real opportunity for you know the Liz Cheney wing, which is you know not like that. Liz Cheney's not a moderate, but she's an institutionalist. But I think that wing, which is currently getting crushed, starts to win the internal battles uh, if 2024 goes really bad for them. Let's talk for a few minutes about the Democratic. Party network. Uh, I mean, obviously, as as we said before, you know, Democrats won on the the backs of democracy issues and and abortion, uh, and so 
if you're, you know, for people in the Democratic Party network, how should they be thinking about both this kind of respite period, as you said, we're in now and also moving forward once we get into 2023 uh, about how to both, I guess, keep their own momentum going, but also, as you said, uh, you know, not lose sight of the what will still be likely a threat in some form from the election denial wing of the uh, Republican Party. So I, I think it's important both to uh, like take a moment and savor a victory where many of us, myself included, weren't expecting a victory, but then also recognize and prepare ourselves for the reality that 2023 is going to be tougher and worse than 2022 and 2021. Like Republicans are going to control the House, and that means that Jim Jordan is going to run a bunch of hearings trying to impeach uh, Joe Biden for whatever his son did or Sam Bankman freed, or I don't know, something like my, my guess is, and this may not happen since they have such a narrow majority, but my hunch is they're going to try to impeach him in the house three times, just so that will be one more time than Donald Trump would, would, was impeached. That's the type of shallow performative behavior that I've come to expect from people like Jim Jordan. And that just in general means that we're going to have a government that like if the, if the promise from Joe Biden is government can work again, let's return to normal. We're heading into a two-year period leading up to the 2024 election where government is mostly not going to be allowed to work because the majority party in the House won't let it work. That's going to make it harder to just have the government – like if if the priority for Democrats is show that government can work, that's going to be made harder. So I, I mentioned in, in one of the Substack pieces, but I, I come out of the environmental movement and I had a formative moment back in my student environmental days – uh, where it, it hit me that as, as environmentalists, when we win, all we win is time. I worked on a campaign when I was in high school to stop a, a mega highway project from getting built in the suburbs. And we successfully killed this mega highway. Uh, and I was so proud of myself and I went off to college. And then I moved back to the area after college and they were building the highway because we won, but then all we won is time. And a few years later, the developers came back and tried again. You know, if a wilderness area is sacrificed, that is, that's gone forever. Species extinction don't come back. And so I had that realization and what it set in for me was it, it's fine if all you, when you win, all you win is time. So long as you use that time to build movement capacity and build organization. And that's true for the environmental movement because we're protecting fragile things. And I think the lesson of the past few years that we've all taken away is that democracy also is fragile. So I think the, the message that Democrats need to take, take to heart is they've bought themselves a respite and what they need to do with that respite is build organization, build capacity. Um, states like Wisconsin uh, and Georgia have been doing a really impressive job of building up their local party infrastructure so that they can compete and win in races that otherwise they wouldn't be able to compete and win in. Democrats need to be doing that everywhere and they need to make those long-term investments that they can build the capacity to actually change the politics of this country and win places where they would otherwise lose. That reminded me of something you wrote about Democrats in particular uh, falling victim to like always chasing the new shiny object or, you know, this kind of thing are, are, is, is what you were describing with social media examples of that, or is that phenomenon of chasing the new shiny thing, something different that, that Democrats are, are also vulnerable to? So a thing that I've definitely seen in the Democratic Party network dating back like dating back 20 years now, and this goes back certainly to the Democracy Alliance in, in the like 2004, 2005 era, 
is there has been a, a tendency to ask the question, like, what is new? What is the innovative thing that we can fund? And that funding lasts so long as that it, so long as it's innovative, and then the donors move on to the next thing. So I, I think examples of this, like the example I talk about in the piece is the New Organizing Institute, which arises out of 2004 and becomes a really important piece of infrastructure for teaching democratic campaign operatives and, and progressive political operatives how to use the internet effectively as professionals. They ran a, a, a annual convening called Roots Camp that was the place where people would argue about things like, hey, how are we using our email for fundraising and is it effective? And like it, it was sort of the clearinghouse. They also ran really good trainings. And they existed uh, up until uh, 2013, 2014-ish. And then essentially what happens is the big institutional donors, once NOI stopped looking innovative and started looking like expensive trainings, they cut their funding. And then NOI had an internal organizational crisis because uh, the new CEO the, or the new executive director didn't do a great job of sort of managing that decline in funds and figuring out you know, who's getting, which staff are staying, which ones are getting laid off. So they had, they had an internal crisis. They melted down. I think it's pretty safe to say that the Democratic Party network, the party organization would be stronger today if they still had NOI, imperfect as it was. Um, but instead, they kind of assume like, yeah, well, we're going to go and fund the next thing. Something else will be able to do it. Uh, and they just kind of keep throwing money at, at sort of the new bright, shining object. I think this is particularly true for, for um, Silicon Valley-based uh, progressive funders. Like there's a, a set of them who are very well-meaning and every two to four years decide they are going to reinvent the wheel and like create the voter file or like, you know, like figure out how to do optimization tests on emails. Um, never even reading like the Wired Magazine article from, or like Atlantic article from two or four years beforehand covering the same set of people doing basically the same set of things. What that ends up meaning is that they're never laying down sort of the institutional roots to build up institutions that people can rely on and can build power over time. So I, like, I, I think that's a mistake. And kind of like what I, what I would really like to see is funders finding things that seem valuable and making 10, 15 year commitments to them, just that we know that infrastructure is there and you can build around it. Um, I also think a lot about like the, the 50 state strategy under Howard Dean. Like, I think that was basically good. I'm sure it was uh, like, I'm sure it had a bunch of imperfections, but the idea of building party organization at the state and local level is a good idea that we have every cycle and we often try it and then it gets underfunded because that's just something that requires constant resources. I think you need to commit to it and make it a long-term commitment. Yeah, you know, what you were describing there about the funders reminds me of something that I see a lot in the kind of democracy reform world, like a funder will throw a bunch of money at something to solve political polarization or figure out how to have better dialogues online or, you know, all these these kinds of things. But there's that there's not that underlying work of like, what does it actually mean to articulate a positive forward looking vision of and for democracy? Which gets to my last question uh, and tying it back to the midterms of, you know, Democrats won in 22 and, you know, people who value democracy sort of stepped forward and said, okay, this was, you know, something, something that we want to keep around, right? So now it becomes, what do we do with that? So putting mm -hmm. your, your messaging hat back on, it, what, how... How should we, we meaning, you know, listeners of the show, people who are concerned about and value democracy, think about 
articulating that vision and and what should the next year look like? So I'm I'm going to offer a bigger picture answer and then try to drill down into a specific. Um, I've thought, at least since the dawn of Trumpism, a, a thing that stuck out for me is that I, I think the dominant conflict of our era is not between left and right, but between a view that says that government and governance is fundamentally simple versus a view that government and governance is is fundamentally complicated. And that that perspective on, on complication is basically an argument for liberal technocracy, right? It, it's an, and like you can trace that back to sort of the, at least the high-minded ideals of the original progressive era, which said rather than government being run just by as just as handouts to whichever party won power, like we should have a civil service that learns how to govern effectively and 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 administer effectively and 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 do it. America, as a as a a country that has a large administrative state and tries to use that state to make life better for its people, that's probably less than a century of our history because the eighteen hundreds. Uh, Stephen Skronik wrote a great, great book on this. The 1800s is a state of courts and parties with very little administrative state. Um, but I, I think what we've been seeing sort of from a, a communication perspective, the it's simple argument aligns really well with this rise of authoritarian populism, right? Like Trump's message is is sort of classic there of, you know, your life isn't the way you want it to be because government is full of crooks and idiots elect me, I'll get rid of the crooks and idiots, and then everything will be fine, right? Like that is the authoritarian message to a T. And I can tell you from a strategic communication perspective, that is a very clear, crisp message with an identifiable hero, villain, victim, and plot resolution, right? Like that. Like that's an easy message, which happens to be a goddamn lie. Government and governance is in fact complicated. Um, so the, the challenge for the Democratic Party, like the, the real problem here is that they are the only party that is now standing behind the actually true story that government and government governance is complicated. Well-meaning people trying really hard can make things better, but it's going to be difficult. There will be mistakes and then they need to amend and try again when those mistakes happen. That is a terrible message. That's a terrible narrative. And also it's true. So like that, that and I, like I, I wanted to start with that because I think it's easy to fall into the pattern of saying, oh, Republicans are so good at messaging, Democrats are so bad, they just need to find people who are good at messaging and then they'll do it. Like, no, one of those messages is just easier than the other. It's a lie, but as an easier story. You know, the, the degree of difficulty is just lower on that. So the, the Democratic Party has the higher de- degree of difficulty message that happens to be true. The way to work for that is you build party organization and allegiance that robustly and enthusiastically embraces that government is complicated. These things will be hard, but well-meaning people trying their best can make life better. And then you also need a government that actually, to the degree that it can, actually does so. And again, that's going to be hard because we won't have the House, so it's not going to come through legislature. We have a uh, radical set of courts that are going to try to overturn and throw a monkey wrench into every administrative action. So it's going to be a mess. They're going to, they're going strategically to make it a mess. But I think every single, like every single state government that just won a trifecta for the Democrats, like they need to figure out what is the legislation that we can propose 
that will make life demonstrably better for our citizens. And then we need to go work through the hard stuff of making it happen. And at the national level, everything that the Biden administration can do to demonstrate that, yes, this stuff is complicated, but when we try our best, life gets at least a little better for our people, you need to do all of that. So I think focusing on that and drawing a contrast between that and the the obvious downside of the authoritarian populist story, which is they, in fact, are a bunch of crooks and idiots. Um, and that becomes apparent. Like Marjorie Taylor Greene says a bunch of dumb things. You know, they, you know, like Donald Trump invites uh, insul white nationalists to come hang out with him. Drawing that, that uh, distinction between the party that accepts that government is complicated but tries to make life better for its citizens and the party that is telling you what you would like to hear but also, my God, take a look at them, that's, I think, the best that we can do. But we should also go into it knowing this is a tilted playing field, which means, once again, it's going to be harder than it ought to be. Yeah. So is, is there room for Republicans to come in on on any of this kind of government is hard? I, you know, realizing that there may not be very many who who want to or, or have the incentive to. But, you know, I think one of the kind of longstanding debates among Democrats is how bipartisan should we be? And as you said, you know, there's this other dynamic of only one party really functionally supporting democracy. So how do you how do you walk that line between mm you know, knowing that democracy requires support from people of, of both parties, but also not falling into the trap of being too bipartisan or risking losing the base or, you know, whatever that line of thinking is, mm-hmm. uh, because you're trying to, you know, dance with the enemy or, or something like that. So it's, I mean, first of all, it's complicated. Or <laughs> that. I think there is absolutely room for Republicans who are willing to commit to the work of complicated governance, there's room to work with them, but it's very important both for Democrats and Republicans to be realistic about uh, their size. I think part of what's animated that debate is, you know, we, we have a, a set of moderate Republican, like I, I think most of the never Trump wing of the Republican party also happen to have op-ed columns at major papers. And so we've had this phenomenon where it's like a couple dozen people insisting that they need, like their policy priorities need to take center center stage. And the response is kind of like, there's 20 of you. Like call us when there are 200,000. So this relates back to like the the scholarship on this stuff. Ziblatt and Levitsky argue very clearly that if you look across nationally, the way you stave off authoritarianism is by developing these cross-party coalitions. Um, and that meant over the past few years, they've been saying, hey, you need to find ways to do that. And the answer is, yeah, you do. But also there needs to be enough people on that side. Like they need to have enough people that it's worth making any trade-offs with them. Um, they currently don't have them. So I think as they work through the intra-party work of winning their party back, again, only the Republican Party can fix the Republican Party. As they do that and as they get bigger, there will be opportunities for genuine uh, genuine partnering. And yet, when, when they have a lot to bring to the table, then that's going to require some real negotiating. But when it's a couple dozen op-ed columnists, I think they need to be aware that they lost their party. They aren't currently planning on going over to the other party. And so they're kind of beggars, not choosers. Hmm. 
Yeah, that's that's an interesting point. I I hadn't thought about it that way. Maybe the the subject of a future Substack post, if you haven't uh, if you haven't explored that already. <laughs> yeah. Well, Dave, uh, this is this has been a fascinating conversation. I hope listeners will check out your Substack to learn more. I'll link to the post that we've been talking about in the show notes, and hopefully, folks will go and subscribe. So, thank you very much for joining us today. It's gonna be great. Thanks a lot. So, so lots to chew on there, and the idea that you know what drives media coverage and money in politics isn't necessarily the best uh, best strategy, best impetus for the party itself, right? That that what is often most important is the least glamorous. It's this uh, ignored work at, at the local level. And it's not sexy. It's not even particularly, uh, you know, interesting, but it, it's what has to be done. And Democrats are not very good at this. And, you know, in some cases they are, he mentions Georgia and Wisconsin. And I, I was in Wisconsin in, what was it? 2000 after, uh, the Republicans, you know, basically, took over the state legislature by focusing on those elections because they were really good at, at, at this infrastructure stuff and, and understood how important it was. But in general, Democrats are really bad about that. And, and I, Michael, I wonder if you, you know, if you agree with that, if you have any thoughts about it. I agree and disagree. Uh, you know, so 2010 was a monumental disaster for the Democrats at the state legislative level. They lost over 600 seats. And then at the next election, they lost another 300 or 400. So they lost over 1,000 seats in two elections. They lost multiple chambers. That's right. I said 2000. And it was 2010. That's right. 2010. Yeah. And, uh, you know, a lot of blame, I think, appropriately put on Barack Obama for not doing the work to build the party organization and making things more about himself. Uh, and, uh, you know, maybe on a, we've had Jake Grumbach on who's talked about the consequences of what happened in 2010 for Democrats in election rules and union laws and all kinds of things. So, I mean, we don't have to go into that. But this election was actually quite different. And I think it's missed a bit how much Democrats have returned their focus uh, to more local and state elections. In this election, Republicans were expecting to win hundreds of state legislative seats. Mm hmm. They won 22. Those 22 seats were mostly in states where they do nothing for them. They were in states like West Virginia, where they already had a big majority. Uh, in, in states that were closer, Democrats did quite well. They flipped several chambers. Mm -hmm. uh, nobody flips – Democrats never flip a chamber in a midterm election. But this time they did. They flipped several chambers. Uh, Democrats also have done much better in rural areas. So there is something to the idea that Republicans are much more focused and strategic about these local places. But I think Democrats ought to get some credit for, at least in many places, uh, having improved their lot quite a bit from what's happened to them in the past and uh, certainly at the state legislative level. Uh, so, you know, I know like he's hard on John, on. Um, Dean's 50-state strategy, like what happened there. But I thought actually quite a bit of that was picked up by Eric Holder 
and his organization in these most recent elections. And it was a bit under the radar. I haven't heard much about it, but I remember there was uh, quite a bit about it when he first organized it. Uh, I don't know. I think that's a story that's uh, yet to be fully, fully told. You know, I, I, I really, <laughs> I really hesitate to say this, but obviously 2024 is going to be, you know, a, a, a pivotal moment in American democracy. I, I hesitate to say it just because you I've had say students, it every time. Right. I have students <laughs> that just say again, you know, you said that in tw- 2016 yeah. and the 2018 and 2020 and the 2022 again, I, you know, they've never known a time when it wasn't on the ballot. And I take that point, but you know, to your you know, your, your ideas about the, you know, the, the Republican party, you know, I could see them absolutely blowing up in, in two ways. One, Trump doesn't get the nomination and still runs. Right. And, and, or um, Trump does get the nomination and Liz Cheney runs as an independent or Larry Hogan runs as an independent. And, you know, um, who knows yeah. what's going to happen? But it's, you can see the you can already see the possibilities of exactly the kind of blow up that that you were talking about. And, and keep in mind, Donald Trump is not motivated here by the usual motivations of a candidate entering into a into an election. I mean, I watched his announcement speech and thought that I've never seen a candidate more bored with the idea of running for president than he seemed to be when he gave that address. But I don't think he's running to be president. I think he's running because he sees this as a way of dealing with his multiple legal issues. Yeah, maybe so. And given that, I don't think any of the usual calculations make any sense. I I really believe that he thinks that so long as he's a candidate for president, that he's got certain advantages in these many legal battles, some of which are clearly, you know, coming to a head. Uh, so I just don't know. You know, I think it's very hard for us to conjecture about how he responds to anything. I mean, it's clear that there's a strong element in the party. You know, you see it in McConnell all the time. He is pushing as far as he feels like he can that uh, Donald Trump um, yeah. should not be uh, the leader of the Republican Party. See, I, no don't longer- get that. I don't get that, Chris. Mitch McConnell had it in his hands. The capacity to stop Donald Trump from ever running again, right? The right. impeachment vote. Because had he been impeached, he couldn't have run again. Yet he chose not to do it. Right. And so a lot of what he's doing, I do think that probably in his soul, you know, he can't stand the guy once and gone and all of that. But I don't take him all that seriously about, you know, how much he really wants to stop Trump because when he could, he didn't. I don't. I don't think McConnell's, you know, chief concerns are who's the president, actually, or any of that. McConnell, I think, has two concerns: tax cuts and judges. And if if he can achieve that by, you know, kind of wavering on Donald Trump, then then he's going to do that. I think. I think that's right. But I think he believes that the the sine qua non for all of that is the well being and sustainability of the Republican Party. And if that means he needs to acquiesce to this Trumpian wave, then he will. But he would rather do it without it. And, okay. and the question is whether or not, I mean, it seems to me like sooner or later, there just has to be a comeuppance. And I think it also means that it's going to take an overwhelming defeat or division within the party 
before it's really in any way defeated. I think it's deeply within that party. And some of the scenarios you laid out, I think, are correct. I have a feeling if Trump is the nominee, which I, I kind of find unlikely, but if he is the nominee, I think you're probably right that somebody will run against him. And if he's not the nominee, you know, my, my suspicion is he's going to tear that party down because he has no loyalty to the Republican right. Party. No, They're just a vehicle. There's no him. loyalty to anybody. Anything, anybody but himself. Well, you know, so we were talking before about how in a lot of uh, TV series now, the penultimate, uh, <laughs> you know, episode uh, kind of sets the table for the last one. And, you know, there's a lot of little cliffhangers. And I feel like that's what we've done. But, you know, all right, listeners. Tune in next week and we'll talk about all this with Candace and, and uh, you know, try to try to make more sense of it. Um, but for now, I think this is great. And, and, and Dave did a really good job of, uh, of laying the table here for us or setting the table here. So for Democracy Works, I'm Chris Beam. I'm Michael Berkman. Thanks for listening. Democracy Works is a collaboration between the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU Public Media. Our editors are Michael Klein, Chris Kugler, Mark Stitzer, and Clint Yoder. Editorial review by Emily Reddy. Additional production support from Andy Grant and Christine Allen. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. Democracy Works is a member of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about our podcast collective devoted to democracy, civic engagement, and civil discourse. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.